Hello, welcome to MHTV. We're really pleased to have you with us. Tonight we've got a fantastic guest, um, Hope Virgo. We're really, really excited to have her with us. And we're going to start talking about the issues that she's bringing us today very shortly. But before we do that, we really want you to join in with us. So let's go to Dave. And Dave, can you tell us how people can join in to tonight's episode? Certainly can, Nikki. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I've had a problem then. Uh, hi everyone, yeah, so we're uh, looking forward to tonight's episode and as always it's great if you can join us in live. Uh, got two options to do that, one is on Facebook, uh, if you just head towards the right of the screen where you're watching us, uh, there should just be a chat box where you can put in any comments or questions or anything you want to feedback, type in there. The other option you've got is on Twitter and all you need to do is to use the hashtag MHTV. We'll be able to see that and we'll bring in uh, what we can into tonight's conversations. But without further ado, back to you, Nikki. Fantastic. And let's welcome our guest, Hope. So for, for the few people, presumably, who don't know uh, about you, about your story, could you just introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my name's Hope Berger and I am an author and mental health campaigner. So I specialise predominantly in eating disorders and exercise addiction and basically kind of split my week. So I spend half the time working in schools, working with corporates, um, working with the NHS, kind of doing a lot of work around eating disorders, prevention, um, getting people to understand about eating disorders. And the other part of my week's kind of purely based uh, on campaigning. So uh, I do a lot of work with the government, trying to get them to take eating disorders um, seriously and to try and get them to invest into services and do a lot of, yeah, kind of work around treatment and diagnosis as well. So can you tell us a little bit about your, about your journey, about why eating disorders became such an important focus for you? Yeah, no, so I um, I developed an eating disorder when I was about 12, 13. Um, and the reasons I developed it were obviously kind of, yeah, very unique to me, but also kind of a multitude of reasons. So ranging from kind of growing up, I struggled a lot with my emotions, my feelings, and just hated sitting with like all of that heightened uncertainty and things like that. Um, I also came from quite a dysfunctional family, so I was often the kind of peacekeeper in that, trying to hold everyone together, make sure that everyone was fine all the time, and kind of really took it on myself with my responsibility to do that, which often meant I shelved a lot of my own feelings, again, and my emotions, kind of pushing those away. Uh, I was also sexually abused when I was 12 years old, and for me, going through something like that, there was a lot of shame, there was a lot of guilt, um, and because immediately after the abuse finished the man had kind of just gone off and got married. I then was sitting with these feelings that there was something kind of categorically wrong with me and I had to change that part of me. And because I didn't want to talk about it with anyone, and I think partly obviously because of the fact that I struggled so much with those emotions, mm. I started to look for other ways to deal with what was going on. And for me, that came out in the form of food restriction and obsessive exercise. Um, so I ended up hiding it from everyone around me for kind of the next four years. And it became so embedded in my day to day, in everything I was doing. And although at points it made me really unhappy, there were also moments when it just felt like it served this real purpose, kind of numbing all those emotions. It was a real distraction from life. And it just gave me what I needed to kind of keep going, kind of moving forward. Uh, eventually, kind of after that four years, my school did get in touch with my mum. I then went to my doctor and then I was finally referred to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services, so CAMS. Spent about six months there, but wasn't able to accept that anything was the matter with me. 
and then ended up kind of after that being admitted to a psychiatric hospital where I then spent a year in recovery. So learning a lot about food, exercise. But the biggest thing for me kind of with my own recovery Mm. has always been about learning to communicate and kind of giving myself that space and sitting with the uncertainty and allowing myself to not get completely kind of ingrained by all the fear that often is so wrapped up with an eating disorder recovery. Mm. Um, But honestly, when I left hospital, I thought I'd never ever talk openly about what I'd been through. Mm. Um, I think for me, I was still really embarrassed about it. I still felt a lot of shame around it. And um, I only started talking about it probably kind of four or five years ago. And that was after coming through a relapse. And I was so frustrated during that relapse that I hadn't got the support I needed from the NHS. I was frustrated that people viewed eating disorders as something that only affects people who were underweight and I wasn't underweight, so I couldn't get that treatment. And I was just so fed up of the fact that people thought that people don't fully recover from an eating disorder and you're often in services and you don't make the progress quick enough. So you're kind of put aside or kind of shelved as maybe a more difficult patient. And that's kind of it. And because of all of this, I was like, you know, what? I have to do something about this. Mm. I talked about it a lot and moaned about it a lot to like my friends and my family. But I was like, you know what, actually, if I'm going to moan about it, I need to turn this around. And that was when I began kind of speaking up and campaigning a lot on all of these issues. Mm -hmm. It's it's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, uh, when you hear it, it's little telescope, you're just like, <laughs> but I yeah, guess so I kind of just like blurted it all out. <laughs> it is, I think, for people that don't know that don't know, know your journey, it, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, it's interesting that it was the school that really first alerted. Yeah, so, you know, I think in that first sort of stage, it, it suggests to me that even even now, I think there's still a lot of problem around how we identify people who are struggling with with food and with emotions around that. Yeah, think? I think I think that's right. We don't, we still don't talk about it that much. And mm. I think we often shy away from these conversations. And I think when I was growing up, people, so I'm only 31, no, 32 mm. now, actually. <laughs> um, can't even remember how old I am today. Um, but I, I, when I was growing up, people didn't talk about stuff like eating disorders at all. Mm. And so my mum had no real understanding of what was going on. Um, she kind of accepted that I was quite, she would call it being a picky eater at home mm-hmm. and kind of accepted that part of me. And because I had all of this going on, I just didn't really bother to kind of try and explain it. But I think what makes it harder nowadays is that we live in a society, don't we, where we've just completely normalized all of these unhealthy relationships with food and with mm-hmm. exercise. And mm-hmm. I always kind of talk about it in the sense of like an eating disorder culture. That we've just kind of, yeah, normalized it so that people often don't know what's going on. People don't accept that anything's the matter. And you then go down this route of all these patterns of behavior. And then because loads of other people are doing it, you think it's fine. And then they get way more ingrained into you. And then you're kind of stuck in this limbo point, kind of thinking maybe there is something the matter with me. Mm. But everybody keeps complimenting me for my change in weight or for getting more muscles or for going to the gym this much or for having this supposedly really healthy diet. And then you then just don't question any of it. Yeah. I mean, and now I'm just thinking, obviously I don't want to name any celebrities because it doesn't feel fair, but we've just had a situation where, well, particularly famous celebrity, someone who very much influences younger women, um, was talking about not eating for three weeks to fit into a dress. And you're like, it's just ridiculous. It's so toxic out there. And it's, and then then like the award of it. And what's even weirder is from the back, I don't know if you ever saw a picture of the dress from the back, from the back it's cut down and laced up anyway. So, after all that, just 
get a dress that fits you. Your dress is supposed to fit you. You're not supposed to change your body to the point where you're not eating to fit into a dress. And now that's been sort of suggested that that's a desirable thing, a good thing, a successful activity. And it's just... Mm. And the way it was reported as if it was some kind of like heroic victory, it was so upsetting. Yeah, How do people make sense of that? that? So in, in a world where, you know... Admittedly, when 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 that when you were at that stage, we weren't quite that as far advanced down the sort of social social media nightmare that we are now. But how did you first realise that there was a problem? Because you're saying actually that you know controlling your intake was actually helpful to you in some ways. It actually made you feel more in control. So when did you start to sort of take on board that there was an issue? How did that journey happen? Yeah, so I remember kind of I guess the first time I really thought something was slightly different about me was I went away with my school friends after my GCSEs Mm -hmm. and we had this kind of week of eating and drinking and going out. And I didn't understand how all my friends could just eat and drink what they wanted to because I just couldn't do it. And I was like, does anyone else? I didn't ask them this. But in my head, I was thinking, like, does anyone else feel really guilty whenever they eat? Does anyone else sit with all of this kind of disgust going on? Um, But after that point, I kind of shelved all of that thinking. And then I honestly wasn't able to accept that anything was the matter with me throughout my entire six months as an outpatient. Um, And even when I got admitted to hospital, I was still in that denial factor was kind of like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what you're trying to do. And for me, part of it was this lack of understanding that they were And I was convinced they were trying to take away this kind of one thing that just made me feel so much better the majority of the time. And I just was so afraid of what my life would look like without the eating disorder. Um, So it took the first three days of kind of just lying in bed and being encouraged to eat and being so angry and so frustrated at everybody in the hospital. I I also was really frustrated at my parents. Um, I honestly felt like they'd completely let me down by the fact that I'd been admitted to a hospital and they hadn't let me stay at home. And on the Friday night, though, I had to do this exercise with one of the nurses there where she got me to draw this kind of life-size version of what I thought I looked like onto this kind of massive piece of paper. Um, So I kind of knelt down and drew this image of myself. And then once I'd done that, she got me to lie down on that exact same piece of paper and she traced around the outside of me. I then had to stand up and look back down at those images And it was just amazing to see the difference in those images. And for me, that was the kind of concrete evidence that I needed to first start to admit that something was the matter. And then I had to really start to think about actually, like, what are the negatives of the eating disorder? What's it actually doing for me? And I think that's the really scary thing with eating disorders is so much of the time they kind of romantic, they sound really like you romanticize them in your head and they sound like this amazing thing. And because they give you what you need so quickly, you then want to keep going back to those behaviours kind of time and time again. And so for me, throughout that entire year in hospital, I had to keep reminding myself, actually, the eating disorder never really made me happy. And there was so much other stuff going on in life I actually wanted. But it definitely was kind of, I guess, for me, one of those moments where I accepted it then. And then I had to kind of do a little bit of work. And then I had a bit of a plateau and then accept it again. And I think even like I've had moments in the last 14, 15 years where I've kind of been in that path of recovery and then have had like those old behaviours creeping back in. 
And when that happens, I often justify them to myself. I'm like, no, it's fine. Like everyone's doing this or I'll just do like 10 minutes more of exercise today and that's fine. And Mm -hmm. gradually like it starts to kind of, I guess cutting those corners turns into then like a bigger corner and then a bigger corner and a bigger corner and you normalize it again. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's always been kind of actually this thing where I have to be like, actually, do you know what? It never made me that happy. I have to sit with the uncertainty of not doing those behaviors and then stuff will shift. Mm-hmm. How old were you when, if you don't mind me asking, when you when you first started to, to realize what you were dealing with, when you first started to name it? You were in uh, hospital. Probably yeah, seventeen, I think. Um, so I so went into hospital so when young, I was seventeen. Yeah. yeah, and I think looking back, there probably were moments throughout when I thought something was slightly wrong, but I just wasn't able. I just wasn't able to say anything about it, and. Mm-hmm. I think part of that with eating disorders is that there is a lot of stigma and a lot of shame and kind of stereotypes wrapped up in it. And if you don't look like you have an eating disorder with that stereotypical image, again, you don't want to own it because it's like people will look at you and think, oh, she couldn't possibly have an eating disorder. Like she doesn't look like she does. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me was quite a difficult thing to navigate, especially when I started kind of going through a weight restoration period and started on that road to recovery because on the outside I looked fine but on the inside I still had so much work that needed to be done yeah absolutely and when you when you're saying that things start to get tough again is it is it like a in periods of increased stress that happens or is there anything that's like a pattern uh yeah so I think so for me I relapsed um in 2015 2016 after my grandma passed away Mm. um Mm. and that was because I found it so difficult to deal with all of the kind of heightened emotion around it um during the pandemic I had moments when I felt like I was kind of going back into those old behaviors um and actually I'm pregnant at the moment and navigating a pregnancy when you've had an eating disorder is like a whole other can of worms in itself um so I think for me even over the last kind of I don't know I don't even know how many months it is it's 34 weeks even over the last 34 weeks I've definitely had moments when I've had to be really really proactive Mm. and be like actually do you know what I need to focus on my recovery I need to get my head back in the game Mm. um so I think for me it's normally wrapped up in emotion and Mm. when I don't feel heard when I'm struggling to communicate when emotions get too much for me Mm. I'm like right if I do that behavior it will disappear yeah. Um, but I always know, I think, and I'm so far through my recovery now mm. that I do know that doing any of those behaviours is not going to help me in the long term, which kind of, I think that's kind of what keeps me going. Mm. It kind of leads into, you know, your, your campaign, particularly around dump the scales and this idea that, you know, if eating, dis- eating disorder is a long term issue and people need access to help when they need access to help, not when they meet a criteria. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I launched it about two years ago, I think now. Um, And yeah, the reason I launched it was originally because I got turned away from services. Um, And when I came through my relapse and was kind of reflecting on the fact that I'd not been able to get the support I needed, I was just so frustrated by the entire thing. And I felt like it was just this complete injustice, if I'm honest. I think it's, it's discrimination that if you have an eating disorder, you can't get support unless you look a certain way or you fit into a certain BMI bracket. And I was convinced for a long time that this was the only thing that happened to me and that no one else ever experienced anything like this. But the more I began to talk about my experience, the more I realized that actually this is something that people face on a day-to-day basis, like constantly. And so I I launched a campaign, I guess originally was just focusing on making sure that everyone with an eating disorder could get support regardless of their BMI. So trying to scrap the BMI as a metric for diagnosis 
But over the last couple of years, it's expanded into something much bigger. So looking at a whole educational piece, um, looking at kind of specific funding asks, uh, again, making sure that the workforce is really equipped to deal with it. And I think yeah. it's, I guess, just to emphasize, it's not the fault of the NHS that people get turned away from services. Mm-hmm. It is a much bigger issue than that. And it's mm-hmm. systemic. There's like, there's so many issues around funding. And we know with eating disorders that there's just not enough specialist beds available for people. Mm-hmm. And because of that, then there's not enough people in the workforce. There's not enough people going into it. And I often actually wondered, and I was thinking about this the other day, mm-hmm whether one of the reasons that people don't go into eating disorders as much as maybe other kind of health careers is because of the stigma around it. And because it's got such high mortality rates, people shy away from it because they're kind of afraid of actually, or will I actually be able to help that person get well? Will I be able to make a difference? All of that sort of stuff. Mm. So I do think there's like a wider piece of work, probably maybe within the campaign or somewhere else to actually get people to understand that people can fully recover. And Mm. those conversations that you have with people, even if you don't think it's doing anything, Mm. it probably is in the long term. And I know Mm. for me, when I was in treatment, I had like these little snippets of conversations with kind of nurses, with psychiatrists. And it was those conversations that probably kept me going and got me to where I was now without people necessarily realising. Mm. I think you've you, you touched on so many issues there. Yeah. So you're thinking about <laughs> what's, what's going wrong with kind of eating disorders. So partly it's it's the way that almost an eating disorder is, is conceptualised and measured because if you don't have that measurement, how do you how do you get through the gate to, to treatment? Mm. And the idea that somebody who's struggling with food intake could be told that they're too heavy for services is clearly a problem. <laughs> you would think that you wouldn't have to tell people twice. Once you'd said it once, they'd be like, actually, do you know what? That could be really dangerous, couldn't it? But it still <laughs> seems to be something that is is pretty common. What What do you think the issue is? Do you think it's that they're trying to minimise the number of people that go through to treatment, keep it financially viable? What do you think the the, the use of BMI is for? I think they have to, because of the lack of funding and the lack of provision available, I think they have to find a cut-off point. And that probably is the easiest way to do it, particularly if someone is physically compromised. Um, And I I kind of say that very lightly, just because obviously people who are bulimic, um, we know that their potassium levels are like all over the place. I'm Mm. sure someone listening to this will be able to explain that much better Mm -hmm. than me. I'm not a health worker, but um, yeah, like their potassium levels, actually that kind of increases their risk of heart attack as well. And often they find it very difficult to get support because they're not underweight. But I think often we still put people with anorexia on this kind of pinnacle, which Mm. means that actually we then just judge it on BMI. And if they're not underweight, then they're not going to get the support. And I was thinking, I do often think that perhaps if we were a little bit more honest with people who came to see us. So Mm. the amount of people that get turned away from services and are told you're not underweight, you don't fit the criteria. Actually, that is so, so triggering for a person with an eating disorder. It's so invalidating. People with eating disorders never, ever feel like they deserve to recover. They don't feel sick enough a lot of the time. Um, And that just kind of fuels that further. So I do think maybe there's something in it that actually we we should just be honest with people and be like, you know what, there's not enough services available. I'm really sorry. We can't offer you the support at the moment. This is what the interim support might look like. But kind of we kind of keep in touch and see where this might look like go with you. Um, but yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think they just need to have a cutoff point, and that's how they do it. 
But it is, as you point out, it's not really relevant for a lot of the presentations, yeah. particularly the non-specific presentations. So, no, it's true. And actually, it's interesting. The other week, someone um, someone messaged me um, who's got orthorexia or thought she had orthorexia and went to her doctor and her doctor kind of congratulated her on how healthy she looked and her kind of change in lifestyle and changing diet. And it was like, no, she's got an eating disorder. But again, because of that kind of, I guess, lack of understanding around it, they weren't really able to, yeah, kind of give her the support she needed or at least even acknowledge it. Is more than a little troubling. I know. It's just <laughs> sometimes I'm trying to process things. I'm like, huh, do you need to, do we need to report that? <laughs> we'll take know, care of it afterwards. Yeah. yeah, I'll let you take that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that doesn't feel right. So uh, we've got this sort of issue. So, what do you think the main issues are around um, sort of preventing really appropriate access then? So, one is the, the scales being used all the time. Um, do you think that maybe because eating disorders are seen as a specialty, other people feel that they can't or they don't have anything to offer, maybe? Yeah, I think there is something in that, definitely. Yeah, people don't know how to treat them, and so they just shy away from talking about it. And I think that's the thing we know with GPs, which is, I guess, quite often the first port of calls that you'll see, that actually they only get two hours of training over their whole medical degree. But even if you look at places like A&E, um, and actually, I was, I was not for myself, but I went to A&E kind of about six months ago um, to see someone who was in A&E. And there was a girl that had come in um, and she clearly had, she, well, it sounds awful because obviously you can't tell if someone has an eating disorder from looking at them. But I was suspicious that she had an eating disorder. And then it was pretty obvious with how she acted around the food and how she lied to kind of the staff that there was something going on. Um and she'd collapsed that morning, I think it was, which is why she was in. I'm clearly one of these people that is so unbelievably nosy when I'm sitting in like an A&E that I seem to know exactly why everybody else is in. But it's fine. I'm just going to put that out there now. I know it's really inappropriate. Um, but I just I remember seeing like kind of people going over to her who were working there, kind of talking to her. But no one obviously wanted to bring it up. And I totally get that because, like you said, it, it's viewed as a specialty and no one wants to have that conversation. Mm. But I do think there needs to be something that's done in that moment where we can perhaps screen the person for an eating disorder mm. or at least have a conversation. Because I think particularly with eating disorders, like we're not expecting everyone to fix every person with an eating disorder. Yeah. But often it is about having that conversation, kind of acknowledging that maybe something's not quite right. And then giving them that space to refer them to services or giving them some helplines that actually might be just what they need in that moment. Understanding this is a long-term project, not something you're going to say with magic words and fix it. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think, Dave, there, there's some questions coming through for you there, wasn't there? Yep, there was. Uh, just let me get the right screen up. So <laughs> we've had a few comments about what a great guest you are. So uh, oh, well done to you for being a great guest and well well done to us for having you as a guest. I think that's... <laughs> cheers, wow. cheers all Way to scream someone's plaudits. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, and then I, I suppose one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Hope, uh, was about something that I was kind of... I always thought was a really good initiative until I'd kind of seen your response to it. Uh, and it's about having calories uh, kind of on, on uh, menus and information sort of about, you know, the, the content of food. Uh, and I always thought it was a great public health kind of method, message. You know, it'd mean that people could make healthier choices and that was all a good thing. But having seen kind of how uh, 
the community around eating disorders has, has responded to it, really kind of picked up that maybe my first thought on that wasn't a great one. So I don't know if you can kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I'm so, so against the calorie labelling on menus and I'm currently in this battle with the government to try and get it scrapped altogether. Um, so yeah, I guess... I guess firstly, like I do, I do understand that for some people, um, they they do feel like it's a kind of a positive step forward. But for me, it's it, I guess firstly, it's important to realise that actually the calories don't tell us the health of the food, and that's that's really a really really important factor in itself. We also know that when they introduced calorie labelling in the states uh, back in two thousand and eighteen, I think it was. It, or, yeah, 2018, it didn't do what they wanted to do. Like they were trying to do similar similar to tackling obesity um, and to try and make people make more informed choices, but it didn't actually do that. People didn't really bother to look at it. Only the people that looked at it were those people with eating disorders who then scrutinized it a lot more. And so particularly for those people affected by eating disorders, we know that going to restaurants can already feel like a really challenging and a really difficult time. And People are so desperate when they're in recovery to kind of move away from focusing on calories and the kind of calorie controlled diets and things like that. That actually when you go somewhere and it's completely just shoved down your throat, you're then sitting in this place where you're like, oh, I don't know what to get because I feel like I really want to get this item of food. But this item of food has more calories than the thing I don't want. So maybe I should get the thing that I don't want just to make myself feel better. Um and then the other thing is, particularly with calories, we know that they induce a whole lot of fear and anxiety. And I know that even friends who don't have eating disorders are now kind of not really looking forward to going to these sort of restaurants because, again, it will provoke a lot of those feelings. So what I'm trying to do at the moment um, is firstly to get the government to review this legislation in the next 15 to 18 months. At the moment, there's no plans to review it within the next five years. But actually, by in the next five years, then all of those kind of numbers will be so normalised in a lot of people. Um, I'm also trying to get them to kind of bring in experts. So actually people who work in eating disorders, people who campaign, people with lived experience, but also bringing in proper researchers to actually look at this um, and talk about it more. And then the other thing is actually trying to make sure that all menus have a no calorie menu option available um, so that people can then go and not have to think about it. And then finally, just scrapping calories as an immediate thing on children's menus and um, I was quite appalled actually the other day I went out for uh, a coffee and cake with my nephew and there were calories just plastered all over this kid's menu. And I'm like, this is just not OK. We know, particularly with eating disorders, that people as young as six years old are getting eating disorders at the moment. And yet we're still kind of labelling everything left, right and centre. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's the right way to do it. I think what would be better is if we focused more on that kind of emotional connection around mealtimes if we looked at the whole person and realised that taking this kind of one-size-fits-all model is not going to work. Um, somewhere that's doing it really well is actually Brazil. Um, and again, they do a lot of stuff around home-cooked food. Um, they have kind of sit-down meals with all their families where they build up that emotional connection. Whereas I think in England, I would probably argue that most people don't know how to eat. And most people kind of eat on the go kind of as a functional thing more than actually for enjoyment. Yeah, and, and and I suppose, you know, having kind of read stuff that you've written about it, you know, seeing the sort of comments on social media, uh, you know, speaking to people like Natasha Devon as well about this issue, that, you know, 
it's really it's really sensible not doing it. And I think it is that bit, isn't it? About what, once you hear that counter argument, you can quite quickly demolish what feels like a sensible idea yeah. quite quickly. Uh, I, I suppose another question in terms of, you know, what kind of support in Parliament are you getting, for example? Are there any kind of friendly MPs that are pushing this message kind of on your behalf and are acting as, as you know, good supporters? Yeah, so there are, yeah, there are, there is, I guess, a handful of cross-party support. So people like Vera Hobhouse, Caroline Noakes, um, Rosanna Khan. But the problem is, is that they've all, they've all ended up, all of the kind of three main parties have all agreed to support this legislation. Um, and so it's very difficult for them to kind of speak out against it because it's been agreed at the kind of leadership level of their parties. And um, so I think my, yeah, my plan at the moment is to try and find ways for people to speak out about it, um, kind of MP wise, but doing it in a much more subtle way. Um, people like Sarah Champion, who's a backbench MP, also obviously has a bit more scope at speaking out about this sort of stuff. And then also looking at Scotland, where they haven't introduced the legislation yet, but they're currently in discussions about introducing it. So using that as a little bit of a chance to be like, actually, do you know what? This is the detrimental impact it's already having in England. What can we do in Scotland to then stop it? Yeah, and I think it's interesting isn't it, when you look at the situation in Parliament that you can actually pick up kind of the toxic behaviour there as well that isn't positive. Uh, and just thinking about the way that some MPs sort of like do speak, you know, in debates and, and thinking, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know Ian Blackford's been kind of, you know, maligned for his, his body shape and things in the past. And and you, you kind of think, you know, sometimes if we're looking to this place for leadership, it's it's a shame that, you know, it's a bit wanting at times, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's, it's yeah, it's frustrating. And I think what, yeah, what I always forget is like, for them, I guess, it's their career. So they're only going to speak up if it's going to, that sounds so negative, but if it's going to benefit them as well and help them maybe ahead of the next general election, so I think in the run up to that, there'll probably be a lot of stuff that can be done around eating disorders and this legislation to try and get it kind of changed in that sense. And maybe that's the time to really push it. Yeah. And certainly you've had success in the past, haven't you? Because you did feature one of your campaigns in a previous party manifesto. So, you know, that's that's pretty good going into it. Thanks. Yeah. I've, yeah. That was yeah hard work, but good to get it in there. Frustratingly, the Labour Party didn't win, though, so <laughs> they didn't have to do anything about it. But... Oh, but you got it there, so that's that's one of the steps into it, so amazing yeah. work. Uh, right, Nikki, shall I pass back over to you and I'll keep sort of yeah. scooping up some more questions? I've got a couple come through. Um, and again, people saying that they love your books and they've been really helpful, which is really good oh. to hear. One, that students are reading books, but <laughs> they're reading your books, which is great. <laughs> Double win. <laughs> um, and one person here has a really interesting question um, asking, how did you find your voice? Um, I find it really hard to speak up. How did you uh, get your point across and get people to hear you? Thank you very much for that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess, honestly, the first year, it probably was really, really messy. Um, and I think I was still probably hurting in certain places and still frustrated by the way that things were being done. So I often wonder in that first year of kind of campaigning and speaking up, particularly in schools, whether I was kind of seeping a lot of pain as a way to like process what had happened. Um, but I think after that first year, what I started to do was I worked out what I did and didn't want to say and like talk about. So I very rarely talk about my dad. Um, 
when I'm campaigning or when I'm kind of public speaking. Um, and I've chosen, yeah, I've chosen not to talk about him um, as kind of quite, yeah, like a tough decision, but I decided that was the best thing to do after a kind of couple of talks where people were so fixated on the fact that I wasn't talking about him. Um, and I also am aware that there are certain times in the year where maybe things feel slightly harder to talk about as well. Um, and particularly stuff to do with the abuse. I'm I, I'm very picky about where I speak about the abuse um, as well. So setting those boundaries yeah. for me was really important and kind of working out what that looked like mm. and then writing it down so that I knew actually this is what I'm going to say. This is how I feel saying it. And as soon as I started to go through periods where I would seek too much pain, then I would stop talking about it. And I guess a good example potentially is, so I mentioned um, that I'm pregnant um, and during during kind of the last 34 weeks or so, there has been moments when I, I honestly have found it really, really difficult to navigate and I've had to kind of, yeah, had quite firm words with myself and publicly I've done a little bit of writing around it and kind of, because I think it's a really important topic for people to be aware of that pregnancy is difficult anyway. And then when you have an eating disorder, it's harder in different situations and there's just not enough understanding around it. There's not enough support in place and people don't get it. Um, and, but I had to, I realized, I think during that kind of time that there were certain points when I would write an article about it and I'd need to have time away from that to be like, actually, I need that time to kind of download, refresh, like talk to people about it and mm. kind of process what was going on. And also times when I'd be contacted to talk about it and I didn't want to, so I just would have to say no. Mm. So I think that's a really key thing for me is like learning, yeah, learning to set those boundaries, learning how this works for me. And I honestly think it takes time and you work out during that time, like what does work for you and what doesn't work for you. And realizing, I think, with eating disorders, but also with more broadly with mental health, there is still a lot of stigma out there about it. And as soon as you open yourself up to that, there is a lot of judgment. Everyone has an opinion on everything. And I know like, from my experience, like everyone, it's ridiculous. It's like one of my pet hates. People have like, I think because I talk about eating disorders, people like random people feel that they can judge how well you're doing mentally based on your body and it's like and it's really odd so late I was getting like quite a lot of like really horrible remarks um like just before Christmas and people were being very critical kind of judging what I looked like judging what I was eating everything like that and then as soon as I announced I was pregnant it stopped because people were like oh she must be in a really good place in her recovery because she's pregnant and I was like, this is really weird. And like, it was obviously really nice that it stopped. But I yeah. think that's what you have to remember is when you find your voice in this, yeah. you have to get to a space where you're not like overly sensitive about people making those comments because everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's going to judge you mm. um, and find a way when that does happen to process it. And yeah, have people around you who are kind of championing you and kind of cheering you on as you do that. Mm. But it seems like there's some really key points there, sort of knowing when you're in pain and to stop, but also that a lot of your learning seems to come out of these change in these new situations. Mm -hmm. So you learn new things, things that are actually really important for people to hear about. And that, and then knowing when the time to respond and when the time to be quiet is. But also I think it's really interesting what you say is as soon as you start talking, people start talking back to you. Yeah. And they don't always maybe approach things with the kind of sensitivity you would hope. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And I think, yeah, I think everyone just has an opinion on everything nowadays. And probably because of social media, it makes it so much easier to have that opinion on everything. I wonder if because you're a writer as well, people think that they know you. Yeah. If they know about you, they think they know you. 
Yeah, do you know what? The amount of times that I go to stuff and people think we're like best friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I don't think we are. Obviously, I don't <laughs> mind because I'm such like, I put myself in that category. I'm such a friendly person and I choose to share a lot, but it is funny sometimes. I quite like it when people acknowledge that they read my stuff or they know what I'm up to. But then it's like they still ask like ask me about it as well. Because then I think you're getting the balance, aren't you? Mm. Um, but it's it's interesting. I'd probably do the same. Like when I see, obviously I'm not a celebrity, but when I see when I've like bumped into bumped into, not that you bump in, but when I've seen mm. a celebrity, mm. I like automatically think I'm like best friends with them because I follow them <laughs> on like Twitter. And then I'm like, no, hope you don't know them. Like, mm. don't be weird. <laughs> <laughs> the words I live by, try not to be so weird. <laughs> <laughs> 50-50, how it works out. But I think there's something about that idea that one of the reasons that I think your books are, are so helpful to people is because they are so informal, because they are so friendly and because they speak from your heart. So it's yeah. not surprising then that people attach that way to it as well. Yeah, and I think it, that's really important for me mm. is that kind of, yeah, that openness as well. And yeah, connecting with people in that sense. Mm. And I'd so much rather be like that than be, yeah, I guess just practical kind of this is the 10-step plan, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I think one of the things the student was asking about was, was not just you found your voice but then how do you get to be heard how do you how do you get politicians or whoever to listen to you uh relentless nagging pretty much um yeah so mm. I wish I had like a really good answer to that but honestly for me it's it's been so I launched a petition obviously mm. um which which re- which was a good starting point um yeah. and kind of galvanized quite a lot of support through that then off the back of that spent probably six seven weeks like literally hounding MPs kind of ringing their offices emailing them um then got a couple of meetings with them and then managed once I'd secured my first debate in parliament that obviously then gave me more credibility and then people would kind of come back um but I think what people what you need if you want to get heard by MPs is you have to have support behind you so I got a lot of people to write to their MPs for like on behalf of the campaign and would get people to share their stories, their experience with, with experiences with their local MP, asking their local MP mm. to support the campaign um, because that's then kind of getting more noise around it. Mm. Um, I think also getting the media involved is really important okay. if you're trying to make change. Just again, you have to have case studies and stories. Mm. But if it's out there, then the MPs are more likely to listen to it. Mm. Um, and then I think a lot of it is just, yeah, kind of going to Parliament, trying to create those connections. Um, I've done like some, I think I've done three three or four photo calls in Parliament, kind of around campaign time. And like two of them have been really good. Two of them have been a complete disaster. Mm. Um, probably on social media, they all like, they probably all look like they've gone really well, but they haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like kind of taking that in your stride and being like, actually, this didn't work this time. Like, what can I do next time? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think putting yourself out there and just, yeah, it's relentless and it's exhausting at times. Um, and I'm probably a little bit too friendly sometimes when it comes to kind of trying to be professional around MPs. But that's mm-hmm. kind of the style that I go with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think the other thing, and I think this is a decision for everyone to make. So I've probably up until the last week, chosen to go down the route of I want to work collaboratively with the government and yeah. be really supportive and with them and them and them. I feel like we're more likely to build up that relationship. Mm. Other campaigners that I know who are very successful choose to go down the I'm going to kind of slam the government at every opportunity approach. Mm. 
Mm. um, which again works for them. But I think for me now, it's like getting the balance. But I think as individuals, we have to work out what that looks like for us and how that would then shape our kind of campaigning moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and arguably it will change over time, probably the more frustrated you get with the lack of action. Um, try not to be too political on here. I'll <laughs> um, be too political on here, don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. I felt like that with Dave. I was like, he's always really political. Yeah. So I'm sure it's Hasn't fine. He? So fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dave, did you want to come in, by the way, to talk about the social cost of eating disorders? Or to ask about him. Yeah, I know that was one of the things that we wanted to kind of highlight tonight, mm. Hope. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of give some thoughts on that that mm. kind of question of you know what what is the cost if we completely make a mess of this? Um. Yeah. Uh, so, but about a year, it must be, I don't know six months to a year ago. Um, I wrote a report with Ernst and Young. Um, and we we calculated kind of yeah the cost of eating disorders in the UK. And it came in at £9.4 billion per year. Um, But that didn't include a lot of the costs, if I'm honest. So we only could calculate because of the lack of data. Um, Carers' costs, um, kind of personal costs, um, to like costs on like dental work, um, travel costs, things like that. And then also productivity costs, which we looked at mortality rates for and people not being able to go to work um, and things like that. So I think it was a massive underestimate. Um, and that was kind of what we argued in the report as well, that we're not going to get this accurate figure until we get the proper data. But the reason we did the report was because um, we were pushing for all of this additional funding. Um, and we had kind of quite a few kind of numbers flying around around what we needed for adult services, what we needed for children's services. But in order to get the government to listen to that, we were like, actually, this is how much money you guys could save if you properly invested into services. And so, yeah, calculating that was, I guess, the first point of call to that. Mm. Um, And we're now looking at getting the report peer reviewed so Mm. that it can be kind of put forward as more concrete evidence because unless it's peer reviewed, it it can't, for some reason, (laughs) I still don't know, understand why, but for some reason the government won't use it as proper evidence. It may really make sense to do that though, doesn't it? If if, if money and, and finances are something which is, being used as an argument to restrict access to actually put it into some context makes perfect sense. It's a really good strategy. Yeah, I think so. It didn't, yeah. And I, it was interesting because a lot of different MPs actually got more involved in it at that point mm. because I think they quite liked the financial aspect of it and the financial arguments to go alongside it. But it's it's still, it, honestly, it's still been pretty slow going to kind of get them to take it seriously within that as well. Mm. And yeah, I think there's obviously still a lot more to do to get them to realise that actually if they invest into this now, mm. then it's going to save a lot of money further down the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite a depressing one, isn't it? I know sort of a, a lot of the work that I did when I was more focused on young people, you know, like kind of in the health visiting sphere, sort of sat opposite uh, government ministers sort of arguing that, you know, they needed to know the pounds, shilling and pence and how much everything that you were suggesting would save. Uh, And that kind of thing about, but what we're talking about here is not just about making it so we've got the cheapest society to run, but also we've got the best society for children to live in. Mm. And actually, even if we found that cost us a little bit of money, wouldn't that be a valuable place to put our money? And and I suppose it's it's the same in terms of, you know, something like eating disorders. If we could imagine a a society that doesn't kind of, you know, push people down the route of of having eating disorders and developing them, then even if that did cost us a a bit of cash, 
that would be quite a positive thing to do anyway, wouldn't it? But I, I suppose it is that bit about you've got to play their game quite often to be able to yeah. get to that next point, haven't you? Uh, and obviously, I think you've become really accomplished at playing their game. Uh, and, you know, more credit to you for doing that because, you know, lesser people maybe would have given up and other people would kind of, you know, tear their hair out and, and go to that kind of slagging off match. Uh, and I can appreciate with some of the, you know, the, you know, to get political, some of the kind of the people that are involved in making these decisions on the government side, they're not the easiest people to like. So I can appreciate that at times it, it, it must have been a very difficult kind of process to go through. So, you know, credit to you, hope for putting up with it. Yeah, it's definitely been a learning curve. I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm so patient in that part of my life. But I'm probably a nightmare in every other aspect of my life at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and I think my biggest, the thing that I find the, the hardest thing to get my head around, and I think this could be, you could probably say this for any physical or mental health issue in itself anyway, is I just don't understand how there's just so little empathy at that level, like that leadership level. And it's like people with eating disorders, people die every day of an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And in 2022, like that shouldn't be happening. It's a treatable illness. People can fully recover. So why are we accepting that people are dying? And it's like, if they knew the mental torment that the individual, but also their families went through, then it's like, they probably would invest in it. But for some reason, they just, there isn't that, yeah, empathy, I don't think. And that realisation that actually this is an emergency that needs to be tackled like this. Um, and I was thinking about it recently, actually, with the mental health survey that's just been kind of come out. And I would encourage everyone who's listening to site to kind of fill that in with your own answers. Obviously, I'm not going to swear anyone's answers. Um, but actually taking the time to do that. But it just feels like we're doing another survey when actually we know what the problems are with mental health issues. It's like we're just doing another survey to then write another report to then put together another strategy, which will be like five, 10 years down the line. But actually, this is a problem now that needs to be sorted out. I'm going to ask you what your, your next plans were, but it feels like that was pretty fair <laughs> of what's upcoming next. <laughs> no, I think... Um, I'm really just going to keep campaigning. Um, yeah, so at the moment I'm focusing obviously a lot on the calorie legislation, mm. a lot on kind of funding, um, and I really am pushing for the government to commit to uh, an implementation strategy around eating disorders with like a proper time frame, proper funding to adequately meet the demand um, as well. And within that, there'll be kind of asks around data and prevention, um, lots of public health asks. Um, and yeah, trying to get people to just take eating disorders really seriously, realising that they're an illness that can be completely hidden in plain sight, but we probably all know someone who's struggling. Mm, definitely. We're gonna, I'm, I'm seeing we're running out of time, but I think Dave's got one more question. Yeah, I suppose just because obviously it's International Nurses Day today, Hope, oh, yeah. and I know you were really kind and shared a, a quote uh, for a previous campaign that we did, kind of, you know, celebrating the work of mental health nurses. I don't know if you've got any kind of messages for mental health nurses today on International Nurses Day about, you know, the impact that they can have in this, this area, this space of work. I guess, yeah, my main message is, and I, I, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but those conversations that you have with people who are struggling with patients with family members it might not feel like it in that moment but actually those conversations can actually save a person's life and some of the best conversations that I had when I was in treatment was with nurses were with nurses even mm -hmm. um and 
they're the conversations that I remembered from like walking around the corridors or sitting in the garden and having a three minute chat with someone. And actually those things are the things that kept me going and still to this day actually keep me on this road of recovery. So I think sometimes you can feel so, yeah, kind of stressed and pressured with this kind of massive task that it feels that you've got ahead of you to try and sort someone's life out, that actually those conversations is what the person often needs to just save their lives. So don't look at, yeah, don't look at that small snippet, but kind of just remember there's a whole bigger picture around it. Lovely. That's a really nice thing to say. I think it'd be really helpful for people to hear that. Um, I think a lot of nurses don't feel very valued. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really important to remember the work that not international nurses, all nurses do, because it is something which is so easy to overlook when you come home and you're tired and you think you haven't accomplished anything. If you look at it in that kind of much bigger, bigger, broader context, it makes a lot more sense what you're trying to do yeah. every day. Um, I guess just to finish up, is Dave, is there anything else that you want to say before we finish up? And then we'll come to Hope and see if there's any last words. <laughs> no, I'm just really grateful for Hope joining us yeah. tonight because just watching on social media, you know, she's rushing from one part of the country to the next. Uh, you know, obviously not long till baby comes along. So uh, lots of uh, sort of excitement and stress with that, that to come. So uh, it's just great that she's spent this time with us tonight. And it's someone that I've wanted to be involved in you know, something like MHTV for ages. Uh, I know we talked about trying to do something before COVID, so it's it's been great. And obviously, I just encourage people out there to do look at the work she's doing and, you know, think about buying a copy of the book or books if, she, if it's not already, because, uh, you know, they are great resources, both, you know, as a mental health practitioner, but also as a human being. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're probably my final thoughts. I hope there's anything you wanted to, to leave the audience with. I guess, yeah, firstly, thanks everyone for listening and thanks so much for having me on today. Um, I guess my my final thing would be when you are working or coming across people with eating disorders, like don't shy away from the conversations around it. Um, I know it's scary and can feel overwhelming to talk about it sometimes, but I think the more we bring this stuff out into the open, the more likely that person is to recover. And when you are having those conversations to always hold on to that hope that people can fully recover and stuff can shift for them. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, um, guys, for watching with us tonight. It's been a really interesting conversation. I've really loved having it. So good night, all. Have a lovely evening. Bye. Bye-bye.